0: morning church isn't it assuring that we serve a God who knows we serve a God who has heard and like Faye said he's been to tomorrow already and he knows and it's so reassuring so as I was studying this week I read an article by Dr. Donald Battle and he said the Lord of glory is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ God the Son Jesus Christ, of course, we know is the second person of the triune Godhead. And he said, Jesus is the word, the Logos, revealed in the gospel of John as the creator of the universe. Here's the key. Dr. Battle said, the Lord Jesus Christ concealed his plan from the world powers. Why? For the gospel's sake. His purpose for becoming flesh was to be the Holy Sacrifice, the Lamb of God. He went on to say how Jesus appeared all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 22 as the angel of the Lord. Jesus appeared as the Lord of glory to the one whom spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Jesus Christ is the great I Am, Jehovah, Yahweh, speaking to Moses both in Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 33. In fact, in John 8:58 Jesus said something that totally blew the Jews away because Jesus remember how far past Abraham he was this is what he said in John 8:58 Jesus said to them most assuredly I say to you before Abraham ever was I am Those words I am that is ego eimi it means I am who I am I'm Yahweh the self-existent God And, of course, they picked up stones because they knew exactly what he was trying to say. The Lord Jesus Christ is God, has always been God, and always will be God. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles two places this morning. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 16, put a finger or bookmark or something there. And then turn on over to 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, as we continue in that verse-by-verse study from the Apostle Paul. As you're turning there really quickly, let's catch up where we were. Last week we learned that we're only to glory in Christ. We learned that no one is saved by nobility. Nobody is saved by good looks or by might or anything else, even our parents or grandparents. It's all by grace because of what Jesus did. We also learned that it's part of the human condition that even though we're saved and we're new creations in this flesh, we still have the tendency... "...to fall for the big three there out of 1 John, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life." And Wiersbe said, "...salvation must be holy of grace, otherwise God cannot get the glory for that salvation." And Paul wanted to get this across to this church so much because they were glorying in all these important people. And so he's trying to tell them, listen, it's only by grace... I made the statement, and I think I made it three times last week, and I told you you wouldn't like it, but here's the statement again. I believe taking personal credit for something that God has done is not only the sin of pride, I believe it's a form of blasphemy. And then we ended saying, as a love response to all that Jesus has done, we should live for him today, and giving him all the glory for everything he has done. And so today, today's kind of a unique message, I mean, if you've ever heard the gospel presentation before, this message, this passage within 1 Corinthians gives the plain, unadulterated gospel message. And so we're going to learn God's plan of salvation, how it was before the beginning of time, and that Jesus is the Lord of glory. So if you have your sermon notes there in your chairs, Roman numeral one, instructions to deliver the gospel message, instructions. If your Bibles are open, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, let's begin with verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. I hear those words from Paul and I just can't imagine the Apostle Paul, writer of over half the New Testament, was ever weak or trembling or in fear when he gave the gospel message. But here he says he was. You see, Paul always gave the gospel as clearly as possible. He never wanted to muddy the water with the truth. And so here he's saying, followers, church, here's how you preach the gospel. There in your notes... When we share the gospel, let it be simple. Let it be Christ-centered, and let the message be given selflessly. So let's start with, let our message be simple. Notice Paul said, I did not come to you with excellence of speech or wisdom. You ever go to one of these churches where the guy, like he's a fresh graduate from seminary, and he uses $20 words, every other word is a $20 word, and you're sitting there going, what? What does that mean? The plain truth of scripture. This is written at like a fifth grade reading level. Any child can get this. We don't need to add all these fancy words. Simply say what it says. Because if you start adding all this eloquence of speech and you start adding all these things to the gospel, pretty soon the gospel becomes of no effect. Keep it simple. Use the KISS method. And that's as far as I'll go with that. Guzik said, The great gospel of Jesus Christ, the very power of God unto salvation, is made empty and of no effect through the pride and cleverness of men. Remember, the philosophers at Corinth, they held them in such high esteem because everybody was so wise and everybody had so much knowledge and education and they would use this flowery speech to win over followers. There in your notes... When Paul came to Corinth, his goal was to clearly teach the gospel of Christ without using highbrow type of speaking. The message of the cross is very simple, even though it seems like foolishness to those who are perishing. The plain message of the gospel, that Jesus left heaven's throne, came as a baby, grew up as a man, took the cross for our sins, died was buried and on the third day rose again to prove who he was there's the gospel and if you accept that free gift of what he did on the cross you shall be saved there's the gospel you don't need anything else and paul preached this truth and he said here's the plain truth so number two let our message be christ-centered you know the word seeker sensitive is almost swear words in a conservative church. (laughs) I mean, they almost are. You know, because people with a conservative view of Scripture hear this postmodern take on the gospel, and they're so worried because they're seeker-sensitive that we're going to water down the gospel somehow. And trust me, I am not postmodern. If you've been here more than once, you know that. But the postmodern movement kind of dilutes the word of God. There in your notes. Because the message of the gospel is all about the supreme sacrifice of Christ and the lost state of sinful man without him, Jesus has to be the center of our message to a lost world. Now that being said, we must be sensitive to seekers. But the message of the gospel can never, will never change. We're sensitive to their needs, we're sensitive to skeptics, sure, love to talk to skeptics if they're honest, but our message isn't going to change because somebody can't understand it or doesn't like it. And that brings up number three, let our message be done selflessly. Again, listen to the words of Paul in verse three, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. This is the same Apostle Paul who stood up to Peter and said, I withstood him to his face, for he was to be blamed. And I just picture this fiery guy who just, you know, would go after people with the gospel. And here he says, weakness and fear and much trembling. I don't believe him. (laughs) Wearsby said, too many preachers of the word so magnify themselves and their gifts that they failed to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul gloried in the cross of Christ and made it the center of every message he ever gave. There in your notes, even though Paul was trained in the best schools of theology, he was not filled with self-confidence as he preached the gospel of Christ selflessly. He had a healthy reverence for the gospel. And so where did his power come from? Roman numeral 2 there in your notes, great question. Demonstration of the spirit and power. Look at verse 4. Again, the Apostle Paul says, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, right off the bat, you got to know this is a pretty controversial passage because there are some cults who use these two scriptures to say, it's only the leaders of our cult who can understand scripture, so don't bother studying it for yourself. We'll tell you what it means. That's not what Paul is saying at all. But my question, what was the power, what was the demonstration of the power in Paul's preaching with the gospel? And no one can be dogmatic about exactly what it is because it's not clear. Some people say that the demonstration in the spirit that Paul used was because all kinds of sign gifts went along with his preaching of the gospel. Some people say that. There were no outward signs when I received Jesus Christ. There were none. Pastor Ed Morgan was preaching a message. I don't even remember what it was. But there were no signs, there were no bells, there were no whistles, there were no angels, you know, hark the herald angels sing. None of that. But the Holy Spirit was busy because he was acting as the hound of heaven and he was grabbing my heart and, I mean, he was slamming me around. I knew it inside. Nothing on the outside was happening. So if you say every time the gospel's there has got to be signs and wonders, uh, I don't know. But Paul did not come with some emotional speech. Paul did not come with some sale tactics. Paul didn't come and, you know, get the people, come on, let it fill up in your belly, hype yourselves up. No, he said, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. I remember one time in Palm Desert, a gal came forward and wanted to give her heart to Christ. And so we took her aside, the the senior pastor and myself, and I was the associate pastor at the time, and... Took her in the office to lead her to Christ, and I don't even know what I said. I remember it was something about the birds in the air and the clouds in the sky and all this stuff. And it was, I mean, it was out to lunch. This gal ended up giving her heart to Christ, and she walks out and still saved to this day, praise the Lord. But Bob Beaver, my senior pastor at the time, said, What in the world was that? <laughs> oh. I don't know where it came from. I don't know what I was saying. I don't know. And he was like, that was the goofiest thing I've ever seen in my whole career. That was goofy. But she got saved. Okay. In context, Paul is basically telling us what it means with the gospel. Who is he talking about? What does it mean that Jesus took the cross? So flip on over to John chapter 16. And as you're flipping there, let me ask you a question. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What exactly is his ministry? Let's talk about what demonstration means. Demonstration means making manifest, showing forth, or proof. Okay? So what does power mean? The Greek word is dunamis, is where we get our word dynamite, right? How much power are we talking about? TNT dynamite, right? We're talking about strength, ability, power, something that resides in a person because of who gave it. So that's what power means. So let's look at a couple of verses here. If your Bibles are open, John 16, look at verse 5. This is Jesus' words just before he's going to go to the cross. This is the day he is going to the garden. This is just before, and he's telling his disciples, and this is what he says in, starting at verse 5. He says... But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Catch this. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and in judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You see, the Holy Spirit to believers is like our defense attorney, right? He's our defense attorney and reassuring us that we have the gift of innocence because we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. But to the lost... He is similar to a prosecuting attorney, revealing their need for redemption. Paul said in Romans 8, 9, But you are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, catch this, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, catch this, those of you worried about your body and what's going to happen because of something made in the lab somewhere, If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. John 16 says the Holy Spirit's job is to convict, expose, refute, and convince the world of their need for righteousness and judgment. So let's talk about these things. Number one, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to non-believers is to convict, The world of sin. So how does he do that? Well, you see, everyone has a God consciousness put inside of them by the Lord himself. Every human being on the planet, no matter if they want to deny it or not, has something inside of them that says there is a God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says he has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. There in your notes, sin is an old English word used in archery. That means to miss the bullseye or to miss the mark of perfection. And so the Holy Spirit's job to a non-believer is to reveal truth to that person through their consciousness and, and, and convince them that they are sinners. And how do I know the Holy Spirit was working the day I received Christ? Because nobody had to tell me I was a sinner. I was sure of it. Right then and there, I know I was sure I was a sinner, I was sure I needed a Savior. Isaiah 59, 2, the prophet says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that you will not hear. So responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and then trusting Christ is what gives us eternal life. The word convict in verse 8 means to bring to light or to expose. It's like when you turn the lights on and the cockroaches run. You're exposing. And that's what the Spirit's ministry is. That's pretty graphic, isn't it? So the Spirit's job is to expose sin, show the Lord's righteousness, And reveal there is a coming judgment for everyone. So the presence of the Holy Spirit is to prove just who Jesus is. No one's going to get to heaven and say, I did not know. Yes, you did. God loves you. And there is no way you're going to get to heaven and say, I was never told. That's just not going to happen. Verse 9, Jesus says, of sin because they do not believe in me. Uh, Again, believe... It means I'm trusting, I'm putting my full weight, just like you're putting your full weight on that chair. You're trusting that it doesn't collapse. That's what belief means. I'm putting my full weight in what Jesus did on the cross, knowing he paid the penalty of sin. So the Holy Spirit convicts non-Christians about righteousness. So contrast, you're standing before a holy God prior to Christ, and then your right standing that you have with Christ before a holy God. When we accept the free gift of salvation, we can boldly stand before a holy God cleansed and righteous. Isaiah again, 64 6, our all, all are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is like filthy rags. Your righteousness outside of Christ is nasty. Filthy rags. Because all have sinned, all our righteousness is nasty. But the great exchange that the blood of Christ gives there in your notes, 2 Corinthians 5.21, we sang about this earlier. For he, God the Father, made him Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might in exchange become the righteousness of God in him. And then once we're saved, the promise of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave here in John 16 comes to reside. And as Tozer said, that is the most important doctrine within all the New Testament, that the indwelling of the Spirit has come, because without it, we will suffer serious loss. Number three, the Spirit convicts non-Christians about judgment. Judgment, why? Catch this, because the ruler of this world is already judged. Now, wait a minute. I live here. I understand that Satan has some, some liberties. Do you not understand that? Ha- have you not seen that kind of at work? Satan, the ruler of this world, has some liberties currently. You, if you don't know that, let me just fill you in. But he is simply a pit bull on a chain. And he can only go as far as God tells him he can go. Because he's already judged. Past tense. His future is set. Now God has allowed certain things, sure. And he gained temporary control because of what Adam and Eve did there in the garden. But Jesus dying on the cross is our assurance that he's already judged. And he can't listen. This is the most important thing of the whole message. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, understand this. Nothing absolutely nothing happens to you that doesn't first go through the filter of God's grace. Now you might say, but wait a minute, this bad thing happened, this death happened, this illness happened, and I'm here to tell you, I don't understand it all. been walking with God for a long, long time, and there are some things I don't fully get, but one thing I'm sure of, that God has a plan for me, and nothing can happen to me that he doesn't allow. There in your notes, the coming of the Holy Spirit is our guarantee that what the Lord said was going to happen will indeed happen. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 1.14, one of my favorite verses. The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Jesus Christ is your down payment. The Holy Spirit coming into you is the down payment that God is coming back. And what he said is going to happen is going to happen. Do you understand that condemnation and hell was not created for you? It was created for Satan. And you have to choose to own that. You have to choose to be a part of that. He did not create it for you. In fact, there in your notes, Matthew 25, 41 Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Catch this. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice he didn't say it was prepared for people. It wasn't. For God so loved the world that he sent his son, that you didn't have to have that. It was prepared for Satan and his angels. But you get to choose. And if you refuse his free gift... You go to the place that was designed for, for Satan and not you. But Satan has already been judged. And the gospel tells us that we're born in natural sin because of Adam and Eve. And so, what do you do? Wiersbe said, so Paul depended on the power of the Holy Spirit. It was not his experience or his ability that gave his ministry power. It was the work of the Spirit. The, his preaching was a demonstration... Not a performance. And the Holy Spirit used Paul's preaching to change life. And because of those changed lives that you see from Paul's ministry, that's proof that the Holy Spirit was working. And and so again, what was that power? And again, we can't be dogmatic about it. But Paul didn't dazzle them. Paul didn't, you know, he wasn't some Amway salesman. He wasn't selling fuller brushes. He came and told them the truth. And brought the simple message of the gospel. So flip on over back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And let's talk about some spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom. Look at verse 6. Paul says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. And catch verse 8. There's a lot here. Listen. Which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Had they known, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. So again, we've got to be careful with this passage too. Because again... There are cults who say, well, see, we have that secret wisdom, and you do not, so we'll tell you. But remember back when we were going through 2 Peter, the Apostle Peter said, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Why? Because prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And remember we were saying that Peter was talking against Gnosticism, which is this, I have secret knowledge and only I can know. And, And so we said way back then, if somebody makes a claim about God that cannot be tested by the word of God or goes against the word of God, we are to disregard everything they've said with that prophecy. But you see, there are times that certain immature believers can't understand passages. And later we're going to study this in 1 Corinthians 3. Paul's going to say, I fed you with milk and not solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're not able. Wiersbe said, there's a wisdom of God in the gospel that challenges the keenest intellect. However, this wisdom is not for the masses of lost sinners, nor is it for immature believers, there in your notes, Wisdom of God, it is for the mature believers who are growing in their understanding of the word of God. So let's talk about the rulers of this age. Who were they? Who were they and why was this wisdom hidden from them? I mean, think about this for just a minute. You are the creator God of the universe and you decide to visit your creation. As you get there, you have these so called rulers of the age going around teaching false things about the Bible and commanding people, all kinds, putting people into bondage and doing all these things. When you show up on the scene, what do you do? I know what I do. I come in and clean house. I mean, I come in and throw these rulers of the age out, tell them exactly who I am. Man, I take off my shirt, show him my big ass on my chest, and I go, bow down. Not Jesus. He didn't do that. And you go, why? Why did he do it this way? Well, I'm hoping we can get to that conclusion of why Jesus did it this way. Why do he keep it as a mystery? I mean, how many of you have said, God, if you'll just show me? God, if you would just send me an email, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Whatever it is, I don't care. I mean, I'll go to Zimbabwe, I'll go to Mexico City, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, I'll give every dime I have, anything, just send me an email. But God hasn't done that, he told me to walk by faith and not by sight, and I hate that. (laughs) Am I the only one? No, no. And so why did Jesus come keeping this a big mystery? Why didn't he just come on the scene and say, I am God, do it. Because then they want to crucify the Lord of glory. That's what Paul says, right? 1 Corinthians 2.7 sounds a lot like Colossians 1.26. Remember back when we studied Colossians, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations has now been revealed to his saints. The mystery that's been hidden for ages was Christ in us, the hope of glory. The church that consists of... of Jews and Gentiles, all becoming one body in Christ. That mystery. And and remember how the Jewish people grew up all their life expecting a Messiah to show up on the scene and conquer everything and make Israel great. And yet they got a suffering servant. And they're scratching their heads going, what happened? And they failed to recognize who Jesus was. He comes to earth. He's rejected by man. He takes the cross. Why would a Messiah, why would God in the flesh allow that? And and the Jews not getting it didn't exclude them. It was just fulfilling what God had said all along. And, And so now the church exists. There in your notes. Notice Paul says that none of the rulers of this age knew of the hidden wisdom of Jesus, the Messiah, coming to earth as a man. Because if they had, again, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And you might think, well, okay, why didn't he stop it? Great question. You see, Jesus Christ, 100% man, 100% God, and one person. The word Lord, we know, is curios, boss, or master. And this is what Dr. Battle has said. The Lord Jesus Christ concealed his plan from the world powers for the sake of the gospel. And you go, I don't get it. Why is it so important that Jesus hid his identity? Why? If the rulers of that day knew this was creator God in a human body, think about what would have happened. They would have never dreamed of killing him. There in your notes, if the rulers knew Jesus was almighty, creator God, they would have prevented the crucifixion. The sin penalty would have not been paid on the cross and we would remain spiritually dead. Do you catch that? If they knew who he was and they didn't follow through with God's plan of the cross, you'd be dead in your sins and trespasses this morning. Whoa. Wait a minute. You you mean Jesus had the power to stop it and he didn't? I think Francis Chan coined the the term crazy love. That's crazy love. But Jesus had the power to stop it. I'll demonstrate it to you. Remember back at the Garden of Gethsemane in, in the Gospel of Matthew 26, 52. But Jesus said to him, this is, of course, Peter, put away your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think, listen to the words of Jesus, do you not think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? <laughs> Think about old Peter. I love Peter. I love Peter because I am Peter sometimes. You know, here they come to arrest him and Peter pulls out his sword, right? He's going to fight all these men with a sword, just him, just him and the sword. And Jesus says, hey, 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 hey Peter, check this out right now. I say the words, and 12,000 angels show up right now to fight for me, right now. And in case you want to know what angels can do, go back and read the Old Testament where one angel in one night killed 185,000 Assyrians. So I said, I think angels can handle business. And he says, I can order 12,000 of them right now. But it must happen this way. I've had... I bet you, no exaggeration, two dozen conversations this week about people losing their jobs or wanting to stand up for the rights and this sort of thing. And at the end of every conversation, I can't make the decisions for you because this is something you've got to know in your heart and you've got to fight for. But I, I, I've said at the end of every conversation, do you know what's so crazy to me is we were told this was going to happen. We've been told this sort of stuff was coming. And we're surprised. What? I didn't see that coming. Have you not read that it must happen thus? Oh, surely not. Oh, surely. Has God left his throne? Is God powerless? No. It must happen thus. Peter, put away your sword. And I'm not saying you should go one way or another. Please don't hear that. What I'm saying is God has a plan. I spoke to him this morning. Do you know he was still on his throne when I spoke to him? Yeah. He hadn't left. And so Jesus very clearly is called the visible image of the invisible God in Colossians. And, but it goes further. Colossians 1.27 says this. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Jesus asked a question in Matthew 16, and here's where we're going to go for the end of this sermon. There's a very important question. In fact, your whole eternity hinges on this one question. Can you imagine? Dropping the bucket 80, 90, 100 years, 120 years here on earth, dropping the bucket compared to eternity, and your whole eternity hinges on one question that Jesus asked in Matthew chapter 16. Can you imagine that? So it must be an important question, right? Matthew 16, 13, his disciples asked, saying, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say the Son of Man is? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, well, how about you? I don't care what they say, who who do you say that I am? Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you're looking for proof this morning, all through history, even the harshest critics cannot deny that a man named Jesus Christ once walked the face of the earth. There's more proof that Jesus Christ walked the face of the earth than Abraham Lincoln. There was a man named Jesus Christ, and there's enough proof that you can never get away from it. Throughout history, even the Jewish leaders try to deny it, but one of their own historians, Josephus, often wrote about Jesus Christ. The famous Jewish historian Josephus wrote this. He said, at this time, there was a man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified, and he died. His disciples, though, didn't run away from their discipleship. They reported that they had actually seen him three days later, after his crucifixion, and he was alive, accordingly, He was thought to be the messiah there in your notes the question that your very eternity hinges on this morning is the question jesus asked in verse 15 of matthew 16 who do you say that i am who do you say that i am notice what paul calls jesus here in these verses he calls him the lord of glory don't miss that they wouldn't have crucified the lord of glory David said in Psalms 24, Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift up you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The Creator, all-powerful God of the universe, again could have demanded worship from His creation. But instead, He humbly came to give His life. He came as a man to identify with us in our struggles. Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way yet without sin. He came as a man so he could identify with our struggles. But more importantly, he came to pay the penalty for our sins. And so Paul very clearly here calls him the Lord of glory. And so now, just as Matthew would say, who do you say that I am? It's an important question. And some may wonder, why would God do things this way? It's foolishness. Remember what we studied a couple weeks ago, right? The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. God, I don't get it. Why? Why? Why do you do things this way? You know, I've often said when we get to heaven everyone's going to walk around and have a big red spot right here. And I've heard so many people, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask. No, you're not. No, when you get to heaven, you're going to be like him because you're going to see him as he is, First John tells us. And we're going to walk around going, oh, oh, oh. We're all a little wrong in our theology, but let me tell you something. When, when Paul says he is the king, he is the Lord of glory, that's who Jesus Christ is. And there's no getting around it. And, and, and so here it is. If Jesus revealed his deity to the rulers of that age, if Jesus revealed exactly who he was, we're still dead in our sins. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. And if Jesus would have showed up on the scene like Rich O'Toole, kicking the doors in and demanding, we'd still be dead in our sins. But instead, he showed up humble as a baby. And then 33 years later, he comes in on a colt of a donkey into the city he loves, and they reject him. And he's like, guys, here I am. Here's the mystery. Takes the cross, rises again on the third day, And now all he's saying is, who do you say that I am? That matters. Remember that. That's on the final exam. (laughs) Remember that. Jesus, being God in the flesh, had a plan from the moment time began to die for you. If you want to talk about mind-boggling, that's mind-boggling. To me, that's just an incredible thing. That is crazy love that God would know, first of all, that I'm going to sin against him. And yet, because he loved me so much, there was no way he was willing for me to spend eternity separated from him. I don't get it. I I just don't get it. And I think that's the biggest question. It's not, Jesus, how did you walk on the water? Or Jesus, you know, how did you hold the earth still for a long, Joshua's long day? I mean, all those things are neat, and boy, I can't wait to learn about them. But the biggest question is going to be, what kind of love is that? I don't get it i I just don't get it the thing i love the most in the world i still don't get why you would create something let them spit in your face and die for them so that they didn't have to be separated i don't get it but yet that's what the bible tells us and i am assured of it that i'm saved because of what jesus did and i trust it i trust it more than i trust that i live in klamath falls i trust it more than i trust that i'll be here this evening I trust it. Jesus is good. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up. Every week we, we offer, there will be elders and their wives in the back. And, you know, we'd love to pray with you. But most of all, we, we'd love to pray. And here's the thing. We've all experienced death and illness and, and marriage and, and bankruptcies and all these things. And we'd love to pray with you about any of those things. Because God loves you and he cares. But if you don't know my Jesus this morning... Let me tell you something. I've done a funeral for a four-day-old and a 104-year-old and everything in between. I can't guarantee you will be here tomorrow, but I can guarantee you one thing. Your time here, even if it lasts 120 years, is so minute compared to eternity. And Jesus loves you. And he'd almost beg you, don't die without me. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, please give me an opportunity to share my testimony with you or answer any questions I can I I love you and I don't want to see you spend eternity without Jesus let's pray father thank you so much for your word and lord it's amazing that you would not reveal to the rulers of the day who you were because otherwise they wouldn't have crucified you I would want to save my own skin I would have revealed who I was right away so they wouldn't crucify me but God you had a plan and that plan included my salvation Father, why? Why would you love someone that much? But I thank you that you did. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here this morning that does not know you, that is not trusting in what you did on Calvary, that God, you'd be the hound of heaven and that you'd chase them down this morning. Don't let them leave here without accepting your free gift. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you and we pray that God, you'd have your way. And I thank you that no matter what the world screams and shouts, I'm safe in your arms. Lord, if you take me out tomorrow, I know where I'm going. So I thank you for that. If you choose me to stay, I'm going to live for you. So we love you. We praise you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithklamath.com. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed.